happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is a Tuesday. It's November the twenty second. 2011, and Thanksgiving Day is looming large. Turkey time. <laughs> yes. Okay, the Golden Turkey Awards. Anyway, the only humor I could find is in the New Yorker's talk of the town. The issue for the 21st of November. Uh, <laughs> it's Benjamin Franklin. You know. He didn't want us to have an eagle for the national bird. He wanted a turkey. Oh, wild turkeys! By the way, if you have PBS t- um, television, there's a nature special about wild turkeys that was quite a shock to me. Uh, apparently, <laughs> the wild turkey is not a butterball. They are as wolves to dogs.、Uh, The、uh, the things that we buy at the store, those are pretty sad affairs.、Um, the hour, the Nature Hour, shows the guy who raises sixteen turkeys from the egg. He hatches them out, and、uh, they imprint on him. He's the parent.、Uh, it's a fascinating show. I didn't think it would be interesting.、Uh, I I couldn't figure out. Exactly what he had in mind. He said he lived with them for a solid year.、Uh, I was fascinated. One of the birds stays at home. She, she's a homebody. Her story. Well, you need to see it.、Uh, another, the last one, the one he calls Turkey Boy, the tough one. He grows up and turns on his parent, his human parent. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that a wild turkey could be a serious threat. Anyway, that's the one on nature. Now, the jokes about uh, uh, our national bird you can find in the talk of the town in the New Yorker、uh, says here that Benjamin Franklin disliked the choice of a bald eagle as a national bird, and he. He wrote a letter to his daughter in 1784, and he proposed putting the turkey in its place. Franklin pointed out, he says, quote, "The eagle is a bird of bad moral character. He does not get his living honestly.、Uh, the eagle watches the labor of the fishing hawk, and when that diligent bird has at length taken a fish." And is bearing 
the fish to his nest for the support of his mate and young ones. The bald eagle pursues him and takes it from him. Ah, yes, that's the end of the quote from Benjamin Franklin, you see. That was a 1% kind of bird. He's in the 1%. Uh, he's a uh, thief. The turkey, however, represented to Benjamin Franklin the best bourgeois Philadelphia values. Uh, the turkey is not only a native, quote, he is besides, although a little vain and silly, a bird of courage. Is a bird who would not hesitate to attack a grenadier of the British guards who should presume to invade his farmyard with a red coat on. Yes, we've all heard about how turkeys are so foolish that, you know, they will uh, stand out in the rain, drink the rain coming down till they drown, that sort of thing. I don't know if any of that is true, but Benjamin Franklin, he was not really being just playful. Uh, earlier on in the turkey letter... He argued about whether or not there ought to be hereditary legacies in American life. I guess we should use that for arguments about the inheritance tax, right? Uh, Franklin makes the keen point that there are two kinds of honor in this world. There's the old world's descending honor... That's the one which people pass on their goods and their status to their children. And then there's the new world's ascending honor in which children strive to impress their parents by moving up in society on their own. <laughs> For Ben Franklin, ascending honor, you know, what we call uh, meritocratic, that is, doing it, you know, God bless the child who's got her own, right? Uh, doing it on your own, advancing, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, she says, uh, he says, is the American goal. Descending honor is the American danger. The eagle is, to Franklin, an avian example of descending honor in action. It means looking classy, but swooping down to feed on the helpless. Right. Uh, <laughs> I have a note here, my marginalia from Oscar Wilde. Oscar said, to think you can be rich and not act rich is to think you can be blind and not act blind. We know that they're disabled, um, the... Uh, People who are born with silver spoon in mouth, uh, entitlement blinds them. Uh, anyway, uh, this article goes on to say that the turkey, the bird of ascending honor, is silly and vain. It uh, plumes itself on the small stuff, but it does share the feed with the other birds in the yard, and it's ready to give hell to anyone who tries to make trouble. Um, now, this article concludes that Franklin's two-bird theory seems to fit the nation better today than it did in 1784, uh, because a lot of people have suddenly decided that the thieving eagle, right, uh, 
seems to be running the show or the yard. The other day I made a note, you know, that, uh, how was it the French did? They got out that thing they called it the guillotine. Uh, eagle lovers claim that this uh, libels eagles, but of course then they would just say that. <laughs> There's a terrific cartoon in this issue of the New Yorker. It's the the uh, generic one, the guy with the beard and the long hair carrying the sign saying the end is near. And a guy in a suit and a briefcase comes up to him and says, Oh, yes, but what are your goals? Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, when there's a permanent class of eagles, the ones that confiscate everything, a turkey can't find so much as a spot on the national seal. Uh, anyway, let's see, heritage turkeys... Free-range, trim of breast. Anyway, the gist of this, of course, is that we are what we eat. Uh, I don't know. Uh, he goes on to conclude a little more here, the part that I like. Uh, about of, let's see, out of many, one. Yes. Uh, e pluribus unum. Ascending honor does depend on ever-widening circles of taste. That's the idea, right? Uh, he suggests that we globalize the bird. Uh, look forward, look outward. Um, unite this turkey thing with tastes a little alien to it. That is ad, yes, ad stuff. Uh, you know, he mentions the great American sandwich, the turkey club. Let's have turkey tacos and turkey curry and a turkey sandwich with poetic Italian sauce, right? Those are the flavors of ascending honor. Cooks strive to make the world anew. <laughs> anyway, I guess he's asking us to, to uh, work for better times. And then finally, it's Adam Gopnik who wrote this piece. He says, face it, it's the leftovers that provide the most delicious meals. I don't know if I agree with any of that. I just want to get away from the turkey. I used to say rather unpleasant things about not wanting to spend an entire day with my fist doing what you do with your fist to stuff a turkey. And I, I, <laughs> I think this year I will just, uh, I will just stick to brown rice and Leave it alone, leave it all alone, folks. Uh, I'm not sure. I used to just do something weird, you know, fix lasagna or do something that was totally non-traditional. Uh, but obviously, being, what is that, being a resistor is just as conventional. Uh, I worry mostly about the great money god Moloch. Uh, the people in my building can collect free turkeys, and uh, I never feel I never feel quite right taking one. But I thought, well, I'll take one and then pass it on. Uh, it choices choices very hard. You know that hierarchy. Those of us who feel that uh, what is it? We're we're on kind of a pecking order, and we don't know whether or not. Uh, <laughs> Yes, if we're living if we're living on more than two dollars a day, obviously we should uh, 
take our stuff and go out and share it. Uh, anyway, I had a bad attack this week of Ozymandias melancholia. Uh, I think it's the coming season, the holidays, and I just, uh, I, I sat down last night and watched the television show about Woody Allen. You remember Woody Allen? He used to talk about Ozymandias melancholia. And that was over. I really, really hit bottom. And I watched the movie Melancholia, which I can get on uh, my TV as a pay-for-view movie. Now, I was cautioned against this by one of the reviews. They said, don't you dare watch this movie except in the theater because it is so beautiful, so painterly, so uh, poetic. And they may be right. It was one of the most beautiful films cinematically that I have ever seen uh I don't know whether to recommend it if you're if you're down if you're feeling gloomy over the holidays it may not be a good idea to watch um, a long more than two hour film about the end the end of all things I found it incredibly incredibly charming and fun uh it's uh, all about our planet being hit by another planet, and that's really a, a, a very, what is it, a very sensible way to go out. Uh, it's not exactly entertainment. That's not what it's for. It's the new art film. Um, it's another art film called The Tree of Life. Um, that's, in a way, a little more positive. What I liked about this one is that it was not... Uh, about our morality, not at all. Uh, it was a strange movie. I would be very interested if anybody out there has a spin on melancholia, uh, a view about what Lars von Trier <laughs> is trying to get, get across to us, uh, other than this beautiful, stunning cinematography. You remember that wonderful movie, Koyana Scotsi, about the beauty of destruction. Anyway, it's an unnerving movie. Uh, we get, first of all, we get a portrait of humanity, the death of the heart. You know, there's a, a big wedding and, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, the women go haywire. They're terribly depressed. The father, husband, the representative male he is very practical. He gets a lot of stuff. Uh, he's a survivalist until the moment when he sees that none of that is any use. Uh, spoiler alert here. I won't tell you. No, I, I won't tell you what his choice is. That would be that would be wrong. Uh, I was very concerned about the little boy in the film, but I need not have worried. Uh, we just see this awesomely sacred kind of blue planet rising and coming, coming, you know, like uh, we keep seeing these these um, little bits, little bits of comets and things passing the earth. It, anyway, this one does finally, in the end, hit the earth and we have instant annihilation. You certainly don't have to prepare for that. Uh, the Wedding is the basic story. I thought it was a lot of fun. It has John Hurt 
as the father and um, let's see Charlotte Rampling plays the mother that was a trip <laughs> I liked her she's what I would call what do you call that she's a, uh, not a stereotype but she's the woman who's basically had it she no longer bothers to um, well as her other as one of her daughters says why did you even bother to come that is to the wedding uh, she, she has no use for marriage uh, anyway this movie there's no eulogies uh, at one point it is suggested that they have a glass of wine on the terrace and one of the characters gets quite angry and <laughs> says uh, well I can't use the language on the air but uh uh, Lars von Trier is nothing if not a symbolist. I'd call him a post-symbolist if I dared. One of the characters does state that Earth is evil. You know, um, I don't know why he bothered with that. Because uh, he's certainly not talking about um, good and bad. Uh, the central male character states that we are alone in the universe. I assume he's speaking for the filmmaker. The filmmaker or the uh, viewpoint represented is that uh, there's no point hanging around looking for uh, our pals in another galaxy. Uh, I liked most of all what the filmmaker does with existence. The, the horses, the insects, just... Just life. The incredible, beautiful landscapes. I'm pretty much ready to see it again. Uh, I think the movie has a strange contradiction. It does teach us to worship uh, just existence, just the fact that uh, we've been privileged to glimpse, even for a moment, uh, this incredible place in which we live. Uh, anyway... Um, I had a couple of conventional reactions, and then I pulled myself together and thought, okay, maybe maybe there will be more movies like this. Uh, the Earthlings obviously do need to shape up, and uh, I'm sure there will be more films showing us what we should do, just in case, just in case uh, we need to prepare for the end of all things. Uh, I turn back to Woody Allen, I thought, well, Woody will straighten me out. He's the one who understands that, you know, staring into the abyss will get you just nowhere. <laughs> what was it Woody Allen used to talk about uh, the end of all things? He said he didn't mind dying. He just didn't want to be there when it happened. <laughs> Years ago, I remember trying to analyze Woody Allen. Uh, I even included him in a book I wrote, uh, Let's see, right. Mostly I talked about his movie Stardust Memories. This, uh, this show, it's in, uh, it's on PBS. It's Primetime America, they call it. Uh, and they do focus on Stardust Memories. That's when Woody Allen apparently, uh, <laughs> hit the skids. Nobody liked Stardust Memories because it was a serious picture. You remember, that was back, way back in 1980. Best line in that is, intellectuals are like the mafia. They only kill their own. 
Of course, he recovered and went back to being funny, but uh, <laughs> life is a tragedy for those who feel. It's a comedy for those who think. Now, in Woody Allen's film Stardust Memories, when the extraterrestrials descend to Earth, their message to him is that if he wants to do something to help mankind, he should tell funnier jokes. Human comedy is more profound than tragedy. In tragedy, we die. And that's very sad. In comedy, we avoid death. And that's even sadder. God, the critics did not care much for that haunted film. Uh, I think... We have to accept that Woody Allen is the definitive American author of our time. Uh, but he did go off the deep end with Stardust Memories. Uh, the critics always pick Annie Hall. That's 1977. That one won Academy Awards for Best Picture Screenplay and Actress Diane Keaton. In this retrospective, uh, American Masters retrospective on Woody Allen. He says that Diane Keaton is the one who taught him how to take a woman's point of view in his films. Anyway, uh, Annie Hall was charming. I, I kind of thought it was sentimental, but I, I liked the message. You know, inadequate relationships are better than no relationships. We all know that. For me... It was the three pictures that followed Annie Hall that fulfilled the intellectual promise of Woody Allen. Uh, they also reveal his misanthropic and misogynist leanings. You remember uh, Manhattan in 1979 and Interiors in 1978. Now, Stardust Memories is about the past. It uses the language of images that are familiar to all those of us who've been going to the movies for more than half a century. Uh, T.S. Eliot, I think it's T.S. Eliot, said, poor poets borrow and great poets steal. Oh, everybody paraphrases that line. Woody Allen's work in Stardust Memories is soaked with the art of uh, Fellini and Angmar Bergman. and It's impossible to find any seams. Uh, I call it Trinity Time. Three great filmmakers consider. They have existential anguish. They have uh, <laughs> weird perceptions of women. Did their mothers really hate them? There's one or two spins on Woody Allen's mom in this retrospective. They point out that she lived to be 96 and his dad lived to be 100. So I think, I think Woody Allen's going to be around for a while. Um, Knockwood never say things like that. Anyway, I just, I love the styles of these three guys. Angmar Bergman in his little cap and Federico Fellini wore that dramatic cape, and Woody Allen, no props at all, only his tragicomic self, uh, an actor in search of an author. He says, there's nothing between 
uh, me and genius except myself, something to that effect. Uh, I think that uh, Stardust Memories is basically reminiscent of Fellini's Eight and a Half, you remember. It's done in the murky manner of... Uh, also, yes... Uh, Engmar Bergman, I think, uh, he, he said it wasn't anything to do with him, but I think the familiar scenes of childhood ghosts and haunted seacoast villages, uh, all that stuff, uh, it seems to me that all these geniuses have the same ghosts, uh, the same, the same seashore. Isn't that funny? Yes. In that movie, that's the one where he says that he suffers from Ozymandias melancholia. He's tied to the three women, and each one is more of a disillusionment than uh, the next. The bitter dregs at the bottom of love's cup. Yes, those are offset by the memory of a moment of grace. They always throw that in. Uh, a stardust memory of love's refrain. Woody wants to go to jazz heaven. That's uh, love's essence, right? I always think of, <laughs> yes, uh, uh, jazz heaven. That would be Louis Armstrong singing Hello, Dolly. Uh, anyway, that would be Fellini's Peacock in the Snow in Amar Chord. Uh, or that vision of the servant Anna at the end of Cries and Whispers, when she's reading the diary of the dead Agnes, uh, she's recollecting one day of perfect happiness. Uh, who is it? I think Kurt Vonnegut is always saying that uh, life, yes, there are these moments. You just save the, these moments. Uh, anyway, in the movie Stardust Memories, the truest love of Woody Allen, forgot to take her lithium, and now she's lost. Apparently, she's gone mad and locked up. I I guess that would be Louise Lasser, uh, Woody Allen's first wife. She said that she was married to him for five years, and it was more like 15. He never stopped working. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Louise Lasser has a bit part in that, in the movie Stardust Memories. Uh, I was... Shocked because she was quite overweight in that picture. Um, she looked so much stronger than she did in her Mary Hartman days, but maybe it is better not to inquire into that, uh, the background in that. Uh, in Manhattan, we have the black and white photography. Uh, in interiors, we have not a parody, but a serious imitation of Engmar Bergman, that meditation on the life of the mind and the nature of human attachments. Uh, family, the family, capital letters, in anguish and conflict, marriages collapsing, women dying of rage, that's like melancholia, right? Uh, in Interiors, Geraldine... Page plays a woman who is a fury of bad art. The loving woman is played by Maureen Stapleton. <laughs> She's a, a Bulgarian who sees the meat on the bone. She knows that life is for living. It's like that woman in the uh, movie, what was it, The Bounty with 
Marlon Brando. His Tahitian woman lover, she says, you eat life or life eat you. That's the way it goes. Uh, I love the, what is it? I love the themes in all these pictures. Next time, maybe I can talk about some of the specific actors, especially the actors in Melancholia. This new crop of actresses seems to me almost as fascinating as the ones I grew up with. Now, isn't that a hoot? Maybe, maybe things are getting better. Maybe the leftovers will taste better this year. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air next Tuesday, God willing, till then. Go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as... Copwatch and the Oscar Grand Committee for Justice present an afternoon forum silencing the witnesses, government attacks on the right to observe police. You are invited to join us for a panel discussion on the history of civilian monitoring and how recent attacks on the right to watch have threatened our most basic freedoms. We will also feature video footage of some of the most outrageous attacks on the right to watch. This forum will take place on Saturday, December 3rd, starting at 2 p.m. at the Humanist Hall. 390 27th Street in Oakland. This event is wheelchair accessible and is a benefit for Copwatch, a project of the Grassroots House. Requested donations 5 to $10 sliding scale. No one turned away for lack of funds. For more information, call 510 548 